I want to start this morning with a couple of characters. Um, I'm looking around the room and I'm trying to figure out who's going to listen to what I'm about to say and think, I don't know what you're talking about, and who's going to say, oh, wow, yeah, I remember that. Um, Back in 2008, Pixar introduced to the world Waste Allocation Load Lifter Earth Class, which, WALL-E for short, a little robot whose only function in life was to walk around and sweep up garbage, make it into cubes, and stack those up, and to clean up the planet that had been destroyed and abandoned by humans, who basically self-destructed. And they didn't destroy with war, it wasn't like something nuclear happened, they destroyed with unbridled consumption and headed off to outer space. So you've got this cleanup crew, and Wally's the last survivor. Uh, He's not entirely alone. He has a cockroach friend, because cockroaches and Keith Richards can survive anything. And so in the background of all he does, you hear this jingle playing for this retail superstore that had taken over the planet called By and Large. By and large, supplied every need that humanity had. And so as Wally cleans, you hear in the background this little jingle, by and large, superstore. All you need and so much more. Happiness is what we sell. That's why everyone loves B&L. <laughs> by and large, didn't just sell products. By and large, sold happiness. And people buy happiness. But before... Almost exactly, exactly 10 years before Wally, we were introduced to a, a very similar pro- apocalypse on a much, much, much smaller scale. As Madame Blueberry sang to her butlers, Bob the Tomato and Larry Cucumber, every day that she was so blue, she didn't know what to do. Why was she so blue? The source of her sadness was that her friends had better stuff than she did. She even had pictures on the shelf of her friend's stuff that was better than her stuff. My plates are chipped. My spoons are too small. She even had a picture of other people's sofas and armoires in her house. And she would look at them and she would just get so blue. But then they built not a by and large, but a Stuff Mart. Stuff Mart Superstore within sight of her home, and within seconds of it being built, two salesmen showed up at her door, and they described an enormous land of goodies, a magic land of retail, and in their jingle they said, happiness awaits at Stuff Mart, and when Madame Blueberry went to Stuff Mart, she saw so much stuff, it made her woozy, ah, now, the world of Wally had no God, and so um, only machines, bugs, peoples, and planets. So the message was live green, save the planet. Um, there was no greater reality under that. But Veggie Tales had something bigger than that. And so when Madame Blueberry saw a little girl with one piece of apple pie singing a song of thankfulness and gratitude, and when she saw a little boy with a bouncy rubber ball, and heard him sing a song of gratitude about how a thankful heart is a happy heart, then her life was changed. 
And isn't it interesting that we can gear animation towards children who inherently know that more stuff will not make them happy. And we even teach them a song about it. And they know this, but it's like a reminder. And yet, we grow up into adults who give us Revelation 17 and 18. Um, I'm going to go ahead and apologize in advance for Revelation 17 and 18. They're long, and I'm covering every bit of it because, frankly, I'm just getting tired of judgment. And uh, next week is Revelation 19, and uh, but this is long. <clears throat> I also want to apologize in advance. Revelation 17 and 18 is somewhere between uh, PG-13 and X, and so um, we were prepared to clear out the kids this morning, but um, didn't have to do that. Um, Revelation 17, 18 is, is it's going to be pretty much the climax of earthly destruction, if you will. Um, but we're going to see what happens in Revelation when on planet Earth, when by and large meets Stuff Mart and goes rated R and becomes a city and nations and becomes cultures that take over the planet and changes its name to Babylon. Because Babylon was by and large writ large and writ awful. And two of the lessons we're going to see today as we zoom through these chapters um, are, are this. Number one, when people must have things to have meaning and happiness and purpose and joy, Babylon will gladly supply those things. But eventually, people will become things. Number two, by and large, Babylon is not just after your wallet, your purse, or your body. Babylon is after your heart, your worship, and Babylon will fight you for it. So in our text today, we have this detailed story of the fall of Babylon, When we've already read back in Revelation 14, several chapters ago, this angel flying over and saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. She made the nations drunk on her sexual immorality. And then we saw last week, the seventh angel pours out his bowl. It's the last bowl and there's lightning and thunder and this earthquake that just splits everything in two. And it says, God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of his fury of his wrath. So Babylon is giving the world the cup of the wine of sexual immorality and the world is drunk, is drunk on that and God comes along and says, you're gonna drink a different cup. It's the wine of the fury of my wrath. And then chapter 17 and 18 is kind of taking that and saying, let me show you what this was. So let me do this. Um, let me just introduce Babylon just a, a, a little bit, just these terse, first two verses of Revelation 17. It says, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, so you remember last week, so we went through seal judgments, and then we went through trumpet judgments, and then we went through these bowls of plagues, if you will, 
And those are all poured out. So we're, we're through with pouring out the bowls. And, but it, but the, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual morality, and with the wine of whose sexual morality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. So he says, Let me come, and I'm going to show you what this judgment looks like. Now, if you've read your Hebrew scriptures, your Old Testament, you know that here we have Babylon called the great prostitute. And you remember even in the Old Testament when, when God's people, Israel, would, would sell themselves, if you will, to worship other gods and to get what they wanted, he would say, you're prostituting yourselves. And this description of Babylon that I'm about to read um, would fit the description of other if you go through the Old Testament, you'll find other countries, other nations described this way, even other cities described this way. But we also know that there was a real live Babylon that came and wiped out Jerusalem and took the Jews away into exile. And they were a deeply, deeply pagan people. So the Babylon of Revelation is a real live city that becomes a real-life collection of cities, if you will, even a collection of kings and nations, that the world will witness. Um, I know Saddam Hussein said he was going to build the next Babylon. Um, he's gone. But the, here's the thing. Remember, this was written to people 2,000 years ago. And as Babylon is described, you can, you can, you can bet that when those people read this or heard this, they recognized a description of a certain kind of culture. And you can bet that what John wanted them to see is that there was a stark contrast between the culture of Babylon and the culture of the bride of Jesus Christ. So let me just read through chapter 17 and then go back and highlight what we just saw and then jump into chapter 18. So if you want to follow along... um, Revelation 17, we read the first two verses, starting in verse 3. And he carried me away in the Spirit. So he's going to show him in the Spirit. He carried me away into the Spirit, into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, quote, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly. And the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from a bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, 
it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven. And it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. Are you tracking? Yeah, that's what I thought. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those who call him with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are the peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose of, by being of one mind and handing her over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominions over the kings of the earth. Let's fly through this again. What do we know about Babylon? She's called the great prostitute. She's seated on many waters, which those waters are the nations, the peoples of the earth. The kings, and you think about this, national rulers of the earth are drunk with her sexual immorality. So kings are there, they're just giving themselves over to the sexual impurity. She's riding on this scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names. She's dressed in the finest clothing. He pictures her with a cup full of abominations and impurities of her sexual immorality. Are you seeing a theme? She's got this mystery name, Mother of Prostitutes. Wow, Babylon. <laughs> And she's drunk with the blood of saints and martyrs. So she's killing God's people. And then the angel explains the mysterious woman of the beast. This beast it was, it isn't. It's out of the abyss. Right, if you go back to Revelation 13, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound. Its mortal wound was healed. The whole earth marveled and they followed the beast. It says here, the seven mountains equal seven kings. So the beast equals king number eight. Ten kings, not yet received power, but they will, but it only lasts a little while. They're going to come together in unity, give their power to the beast. They will go the lamb, fight the lamb, they'll lose. And then they're all going to turn against the woman because that's what you do. Use her and then you're through with her. So what we see in Babylon is the, the ultimate, it's, it's almost like if you want to make a point, you've got this character that is so outrageous. Like this is so outrageous. But you need to see that she is every sort of example of corruption and abomination. Political corruption, economic corruption, social corruption personal, sexual, you name it, at every level of society from king to the common man, it's corrupt. It's an abomination. It is idolatry run amok on full display. Now, it's just real quick, now that the last bowl has been poured out, and every week I've been saying, are you recognizing Exodus here? Are you recognizing Moses and Pharaoh and the plagues on Egypt here? There's a very interesting connection here, and Eugene Peterson kind of pointed this out. Um, 
Do you remember a couple of things about the Exodus? Do you remember what Moses said to Pharaoh? And Pharaoh kept saying, denying his request. Let us go out and worship. Let, let me lead my people out to worship. Now, of course, there's the whole deal with the fact that they're slaves and they're building for him. But also he's thinking, no, we've got our gods. I don't need your people going out to worship a different God and your God is doing stuff that our gods can't seem to handle. And every time there was a plague, it was like a strike against one of their gods. So if you think about it, the judgment comes not just on the evil of Pharaoh, but on the fact that the one thing he's stopping is the worship of God's people, right? As a matter of fact, if you, this verse popped into my head, if you go through the Red Sea and and you go to back to when um, Moses comes back to his father-in-law Jethro, I remembered that I'd memorized this verse at some point in my life and I went back to my memory box and I found it. Exodus 18, verses 10 and 11. Jethro says to Moses, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. And listen to this line. Now I know that the Lord, Yahweh, is greater than all the gods. For in the very thing in which they behaved proudly, he was above them. So Jethro says, you're right. All of those gods are nothing because the Egyptians thought, well, we've got a God of this, 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 and all of our gods are powerful. And Yahweh said, no, you're not, no, you're not, no, you're not, no, you're not, no, you're not. I am Lord. Jethro was convinced. So the whole point was, who are we going to worship? And so the, the, the beast, the prostitute, the Babylon, it's all come together. All these kings, they want your worship. And the beast goes from being ridden on a place of, of submission and servitude to a place of power and authority and turns the whole thing upside down. And they make war against the lamb. We saw that last week where these demonic spirits came out and they're gathering. But the lamb wins. Why? Because he's king of kings and lord of lords. The exact title given to Yahweh in the Old Testament is applied to the lamb. Amazing. Lots of scripture. We won't get into it. But, but go back again to verse 14 just because I have to point this out. In the middle of this Babylonian culture, they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And, and, and look, who else is in this verse? Look at the end of verse 14. And those with him, those with him are three things, called, chosen, and faithful. Called, chosen, and faithful. Aren't those three wonderful words? Two of those words are things that Jesus does and we simply respond to them. He calls, he chooses, and we rejoice in that. And then he's faithful, and our faithfulness is just us living in his faithfulness to us. But then God comes along in verse 17, and I'm just... I just read this and I thought, how God do you have to be to be able to do verse 17? Look how God you have to be to do this. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose of being one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. So God's got these kings 
who are pagan kings, who are drunk with the wine of sexual immorality, and he just puts it in their heart. Okay, you guys are going to come together in unity, and you're just going to submit all your, your power and your authority to the beast. I'm just going to give you this desire. I'm just going to put it in your heart. Now follow through with this. That's God. Okay, we've got to get to verse chapter 18. Let's work through this. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Listen to this desolation. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. She's a ghost town. She's a shell of her former self. She's wiped out. She's haunted by demons and buzzards and rats and hyenas. And you could picture Mustafa's brother Scar overlooking it all, right? It's just desolate. Sorry, little Lion King in there. But, but she's made people rich and powerful and drunk with her sexual morality. Now she's... And then verse 4, Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Right? For her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she has mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, So give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Catch this. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow in mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day. Death and mourning and famine and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Can you imagine the arrogance of saying, I am a queen and you will never see me sad. You will never see me grieve. And God says, really, I'll take care of that in an hour. And he says to his people, come out of there because it's going to get bad. Now, the merchants and the kings of the earth are all now going to respond to this. And listen to how they respond. Verse 9, the kings, the kings of the earth who committed sexual morality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. So these kings had been made rich by Babylon. They lived in luxury because of Babylon. They're weeping and wailing. Why? Because they love Babylon so much? No, because they love that Babylon helps them live in luxury. Look where they are. They're standing far off and going, oh, poor Babylon over there. (laughs) You poor thing over there. (laughs) Sorry you're not going to help us be rich anymore. Sorry about our luxury. Right, you see what they're weeping about. Now the merchants, 
of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of, now, I'm going to read through a list of cargo. So you can imagine all these cargo ships. They're loaded to the gills and they're weeping because they're just going to sit there full of merchandise. Because there's not going to be anybody to buy it. And they're weeping. But, but listen to the merchandise on these ships. It goes all the way down through verse 13. And I want you to think something as I read this list. How much of this stuff is luxury and how much of this is need? Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented woods, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, and chariots. Okay, we finally at least got to food. You see what this is? This is luxury. There's, there's very little of need on these ships. There's just, it's, they're, they're ships filled with things that Bob Elon convinced people they needed if they were going to have purpose and joy and happiness in their life. But look at the very, very last thing on the list. I, did, I didn't get there. I left it out. We got wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves. That is human souls. That's what's on the cargo ships. It's people. You see that? So they loved her to the degree that she did them good. And they're mourning for Babylon because of what they lose. But it goes from luxury. In other words, all of this is at the expense of humanity. People are no longer people. People are objects. People are things. Slaves are right there in the list with marble and cinnamon. When life is oriented around consumption, then people are consumed just like goods. And that is true with the consumerism, that is true with the sexual immorality, and when they come together, it's just people being used. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. Verse 15, the merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off, like the kings did, in fear of her torment. We don't want to get caught up in that mess. Weeping and mourning aloud, alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. In a single hour, all this wealth has been laid to waste. And all the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all who strayed is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. So you can just see them watching the smoke go up. And this is what they say. What city was like the great sea? There's never been a city like this. We've never been able to make money like we made money there. And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. If you had a ship you could make money. For in a single hour, she's been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Did you see what just happened? They just acknowledged that this was God's doing. 
They know this is God's doing. Let's keep trucking, verse 21. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. I think that's proof that angels are men. Men love throwing big things into water and watching them splash. I don't know why that is. We just do. But do you see what he does? It's a picture. It's an illustration. This millstone sinks. You'll never see the millstone again. But now, imagine with me as I read through this list. A hustling, bustling, just picture the greatest city. I don't know. If you've ever been to New York City, there's all the city that never sleeps. There's always something happening. There's always a party somewhere. There's always somewhere to buy stuff, right? This is Babylon to the... Multiply that by 100,000, right? Listen to this. The sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. There's no music. Imagine a city this huge with no music. Nobody's playing music. Listen to this. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. There's nobody making things. The sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. There's no factory work. There's nobody grinding wheat. The light of the lamp will shine in you no more. When it gets dark, it's dark. Nobody's up late. And this is the saddest, I think. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will be heard in you no more. Like, is there a greater party, a greater time of happiness than the coming together of bride and groom? And it's gone. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints of all who have been slain on earth. Now, I'm just going to dip into chapter 19 a little bit. We'll come back more. But, but, but I think there's something very, very important in chapter 19 that I have to show you. Um, First of all, I just have to point this out because this has actually kind of surprised me this week. Um, all the heavenly worship we've seen, all the angels, all the beings, everybody we've seen worshiping in all of Revelation through 18 chapters, and in chapter 19 is the first time we come to the word hallelujah. Hallelujah, where you been? Well, here we are, right? And it's four times, there's four hallelujahs. Let's read this. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are what? Do you remember the two words from last week? True and just. God is true when he does this. God is just. He's not overreacting. He's not flying off the handle. He's not showing himself to be a liar. He's true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. The reason I read those is just, by goodness, we needed something good. But... I think there's something to be found in verse 1. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. When I say the battle is for your worship, 
If you say salvation and glory and power belong to our God, what are you saying? You're saying it doesn't belong to anyone else. And it sure doesn't belong to Babylon. Babylon promised us salvation. Whatever it was they were looking to be saved from, their boredom, their purposelessness, their meaninglessness, their lack of happiness, their loneliness, whatever it was, Babylon said, I'll save you from that. Babylon had glory and promised glory. Nope, that belongs to God. Babylon promised power and had power. Nope, that belongs to our God. Everything the kings and the merchants attributed to Babylon, they gave their worship to her. But really, that belongs to God. So, do you see that in chapter 17 and chapter 18, there's this culture of Babylon. And at the beginning of chapter 19, there's this culture of the bride of Christ. And they're polar opposite cultures because of how it starts with their worship, right? It starts with their worship. So if we go back uh, to the very beginning, to those two points I made. When people must have things to be happy, Babylon will gladly supply the things, but eventually people will become the things. That's the Babylonian culture. But in the culture of the bride of Christ... Christ is our joy, and people are, are, are people made in the image of God, and we love them. They are not things to be used. And the fight is over our worship. And Okay, listen. I'm going to say this right now to, to, to head off at the pass anything that you would take with you here today. Okay? Please do not hear me saying that in this passage, Babylon equals the United States of America. If you leave here and say, well, my pastor says America is Babylon. No, he didn't. <laughs> right? Babylon will be a real live place. And I don't know if we see that yet. But there are aspects of the culture of, of America that are Babylonian in nature. We are very Babylonian. And... Robertson McQuilkin, who was the president of the Bible College where I went right before I got there, he used to have this, this picture he would give us. Um, he would say, if you were to go down to the hospital and you were to go just pick out a floor and you were to walk that floor and you were to take every single patient's temperature, you might find the average temperature of the patients on that hospital floor are 103. Just throw that number out there, 103. And if you lived there long enough you might convince yourself that that average temperature of 103 is the normal temperature. But it's not the normal temperature, it's the average temperature. Why? Because there's a difference between normal and average. And he used to always tell us, look at us and say, don't be average, be normal. <laughs> don't be average, be normal. <laughs> so there's things in a Babylonian culture that seem normal, they're not, they're just average. And I'm encouraging you, don't be a normal Babylonian be a normal Christian and don't be an average Babylonian. And let me just point out just a couple of things. And I'm talking about these on a cultural level. I'm not going to get into the details of your personal life and guilt and shame and all that. But um, let's talk about being drunk on the wine of sexual morality. 89% of all the pornography in the world is produced in the United States of America. We are making planet Earth drunk on sexual morality. Okay? Let me just give you an example. I'm going to list 
some websites. WhatsApp, Amazon.com, both of the Microsoft websites where you get Outlook, all your email, all that, and then Microsoft Office where you go to do work. Um, Netflix, oh, that's a doozy. Um, LinkedIn, Zoom. Okay, those are biggies, aren't they? Netflix, Zoom, Microsoft, Amazon.com. Those are the big boys. Guess what? There are pornographic websites that are visited more than every one of those. There's a fight for number 10 on the list between Twitter and Pornhub. <laughs> like I'm looking at the top 24, one, two, three, four of them are pornography. We're making the world drunk with it. So, I mean, it just looks as if if you know if you know anybody who spent time on Netflix, you know somebody who spent time looking at porn. And we're making the world drunk. Why? And we talk about it in sitcoms like it's normal. Now, I'm not here to, to do the whole guilt, shame, pornography thing. I'm simply saying, in a Babylonian culture, that's perfectly normal. It's not normal. It's just average. So I'm just going to say this, Okay. If that's something you struggle with, the moment it becomes normal for you, well, this is just who I am. This is my thing. This is my struggle. And it's just kind of part of your daily life. The moment it becomes normal is the moment you need to be scared to death of because it's only normal in Babylon. It's not normal for the bride. That's just all I'm going to say. Never let that be normal. Just, and then just the whole idea of, man, we could go on and on about the consumer culture, demanding a lot of luxury and a lot of stuff. But let me just, do you guys remember how small grocery stores were when you were a kid? <laughs> Why? Because you had two options of everything, maybe one option. Um, and I'm not hating on capitalism, but we're, we live in a country that says, if I don't have a whole lot of options, I'm not going to be happy. And the more choices I have, the better off I am. And just let me give you a stupid example. Gatorade. When I was a kid, Gatorade was in a glass bottle, two flavors, lemon, lime, or orange. And and the world of sports was divided between lemon, lime, and and orange guys. I was an orange guy. Everybody else was just animals. Anyway, um, and guess what? There were four ways you could, could buy it. A man up the street from me worked at a, a, a sports supply store. He supplied colleges and high schools with sporting goods. And you could buy a can of Gatorade powder in the same two flavors. So there were four ways to get Gatorade. Four. I went to the Pepsi website and, and downloaded a spreadsheet. There are 162 ways to get Gatorade. Why? Because we have to. It's America. Give me my choices. I want 50 bazillion, right? It's just kind of this idea where more and more and more, and then moving past Gatorade, because that's a silly example, but it's true, 162, I mean, for crying out loud, how many different ways can you consume Gatorade? How hot did you get mowing the yard or playing football? Anyway, um, when you take that into a society that's structured by what you can buy, 
right? Why do kids get bullied in school for not wearing the right brand names? Lots of reasons, but one of those reasons is that society is structured where people get their example from the people who consume what they want to consume. Like your worth is measured by what you can buy. And, and the things we want are measured by the people I want to connect with. So when your kid is being bullied for what they wear, what are they saying? I really wish I could connect with those people who wear nicer stuff. And I wish society wasn't based on stupid label on my clothing. It's a dumb thing to be bullied for, right? So I would just simply say, when you find in yourself my happiness, my joy, my salvation, my glory, will power comes from what I can consume, that's average, but that is not normal. And let me just say this one last thing to wrap up. Um, a pastor told me one time that... Um, I'll just take what he said and apply it here. Um, we worship our way into average. We worship our way into average. Babylon promises salvation from your boredom, salvation from your unhappiness, salvation from your sense of meaninglessness, salvation from your loneliness, salvation from your feeling like you have a lack of power in your life. But you know what Babylon will do to you when it gives you that salvation and you start worshiping that? The next thing you know, the people around you are just objects. They're just things to be used. And we have to pay so close attention to our hearts because that's the world we're called to reach. Right? And you can't reach Babylon being an average Babylonian. So you worship your way into that. How do you get out? You worship your way out by becoming normal. I know normal doesn't sound great, but I'm just saying be normal. In terms of chapter 19, heaven worshiping the lamb and realizing salvation, glory, and power belong to our God. That's our God's territory. Will you, will you pray with me? Lord, um, oh, this is so hard, but you're so worthy of worship. And, and really, that's just, like Joey pointed out, oh God, you are my God, and I will ever praise you. To be able to say that the one true living God whose justice and judgments are just and true, to be able to say that the Lamb of God has chosen and called a people to be faithful to him, that's my God. That's who I worship. That's the one in whose presence will be pleasures and joy forevermore. That's where meaning is found. That's where purpose is found. That's where rescue is found. God, I, I plead with you that you would make us normal like that. And Lord, just for anybody in, in this room, that the temptations of Babylon have become their normal. Oh God, would you wake them up? 
wake us up. Lord, if we find ourselves at home in any consumer group, in any partisan political situation, if we just find ourselves and say, oh, this is normal, do whatever it takes to wake us up. If we find ourselves just at home giving free reign to our lust and getting drunk on lust, Wake us up to the abnormality of that. And Lord, would it just would it just be your good pleasure? We, we see in this text, you put it in the hearts of people to do something. Would it be your good pleasure to put it in the heart of your people here at Creekside Bible Church to just live a normal, spirit-filled, worshiping life? life, worshiping at the feet of the Lamb and not at the feet of this world, Lord. Thank you for Revelation. Thank you for, for chapters 19, 20, and 21 coming up. But thank you for the warnings. They're so stark. Be our joy as we sing this last song. Be the joy we take into this world. In Christ's name we pray.